you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that you might redeem people like us. Father, every single one of us here tonight needs to not only hear and not only know, but to accept and to believe the message that you sent to us at Christmas. Father, the first Christmas, as we call it, when Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, in a stable, into humility, into anonymity. And yet that one small child, Father, grew up. He was your son, presented himself as Lord and and Savior of all who would believe. And Father, I thank you for the privilege we have tonight of gathering together as your people, again, as family, as friends, as believers in Jesus Christ, to sing the praise of Jesus who came, who was born, but wasn't just born, but lived and died and rose from the dead, and and who we worship now, because he is seated at your right hand. And Father, again, as as we spend this time together, as we pause from, from the rush and and the activity and the noise and the buzz of Christmas, of all the other things that have been built up around it. Father, my prayer is just that for the next few minutes that that perhaps our hearts have been quieted, perhaps our worries and our anxieties and and the lists running through our minds have been removed, that for the next little while, just a few short minutes, we might be able to listen to the story of Jesus. Father, there's no greater story that's ever been told There's no greater truth that's ever been proclaimed than that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to rescue us from sin. And so, Father, my prayer right now as we open your word and as I seek to just share with with family and friends from it, Father, I ask that over the next few minutes you would be our teacher. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and guide us in truth. Of all nights, Father, guide us in truth. Father, I ask that by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, this is the one message that no one dares miss. Father, I ask that for the next few minutes, the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would deliver our hearts from whatever we brought in with us that's in the way. Father, whether it's joy or sorrow, whether it's blessing or or burdens, Father, you would just clear it all away and help us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly tonight. Again, of all nights, let us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus this night only. And Father, when we leave this place, regardless of the condition in which we came, I pray that we would leave knowing him. Father, if never before in a personal way, and for those of us who do know him, knowing him and loving him more than ever. Father, not so that we might simply be warmed and filled, but so that we might live to the praise of his glory in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we're so glad to, to have each one of you here with us tonight, and hopefully as we've sung familiar songs, songs of Christmas, songs that tell the story that, uh, that we're here to celebrate, that we just trust that your heart is, is ready or becoming more and more ready for celebrating what Christmas is, is really all about. And for the next few minutes, I just want, I don't know if you brought a Bible with you. If not, it's just fine. We'll put the scriptures on the screen. But if you do have one and want to join me, I'm going to share for the next few minutes some, some thoughts and, and some, some words from Isaiah chapter 9. Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 9, just two verses, and I'll read them in a moment, and when I do, they'll be familiar to many of you. But as you're making your way there, or just sort of settling in for a moment, I want to begin by saying to you, as we go to God's word, that if there's one thing we want you to leave tonight knowing, it is this, that God loves you. 
If there's one thing we want you to leave tonight knowing, this place convinced of, more convinced of than ever, maybe introduced to for the very first time, it is the fact that God loves you. And that furthermore, the supreme demonstration of his love, the proof of how much God truly does love each and every person in this room tonight is found in what we've gathered here to celebrate, the birth of Jesus Christ. God the Father sending Christ the Son to earth to rescue us from our sin. Now, many of you already know the details of the story. That's why you're here. And, and you could stand up here and, and tell the details, share the story every bit as well as I can. But even if you didn't know them coming in, perhaps tonight you're hearing the, the true story of Christmas for the very first time. The fact of the matter is, even if you didn't know it before you came, you know it now because you just got told it. Well, you were told in song, you were told in the reading of scripture, the very essentials of the story of Christmas, which is this, that a long time ago in a country far, far away, there was a young girl named Mary engaged to a young man named Joseph, who one day found herself carrying in her womb the Messiah. She was told it was the very Son of God. And furthermore, the Bible goes on to tell us in that story that, that it just so happened that while they were, Mary and Joseph, in Bethlehem, because the government sent them there for an official mandatory census, the Bible says the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And, and the bottom line of, of the story of Christmas is that that little baby that Mary and Joseph welcomed into the world that first Christmas night, as we call it, was in fact Christ the Lord, who came to rescue us from the death grip of sin. Probably tonight you came in knowing that. But what you may not know, some of you may and others may not, was that Jesus Christ's birth didn't just happen. It wasn't just some sort of happy accident that, that ended up working out for, for the benefit of the whole wide world and turned into what we know tonight as Christmas. No, what the Bible says very, very clearly is that the story of Christmas is something God planned out long, long, long in advance. In fact, the Bible says God planned it out before he even created the world. That what we celebrate here tonight was an ancient predetermined plan of God. Again, to rescue us from the penalty and, and power of sin. And what the Bible goes on to show us is that throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament history and story of God's people Israel, that all along the way, until Jesus arrived, God was dropping hints and clues. We call them prophecies telling us that this child would be born, telling us where he would be born and, and how he would be born and who he would be and what he would be all about. And, and one of those prophecies is found in the verses I want to speak to you from tonight. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, where 700 years, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, this is what God said to us, said to the whole world through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Then Isaiah tells us that it is the zeal or the passion of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this. 
And you know, the reason I'm drawn to these particular verses tonight, there's all kinds of places we could go in the Bible to talk about, to, to retell, to remember the story of Christmas. But the specific reason I'm drawn to these two verses is because of the fact that, that while simply by gathering here tonight for this service, we are acknowledging the fact that Jesus came. We're acknowledging that he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And along the way, again, we've done it already. We've considered or we've been reminded of, of when he came and, and, and how he came. And, and already several times we've been told why it happened, that he came to rescue us from the penalty and, and power of sin. I believe that tonight we would do well to take a few minutes to consider not just that Jesus came, how he came, when he came, and the ultimate purpose for why he came, but also the difference that Jesus' coming makes right here and right now in every single one of our lives. And I believe that that is something, the difference that Jesus makes is something expressed in the four titles Isaiah gave him in, in, in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. When he said, when he comes, he will be called, again, if you have your Bible, look at it again, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Because I've been thinking a lot about that verse this week, actually for the past several weeks. And I thought, you know, God through Isaiah, what he could have said is when the Messiah comes, he will be called Jesus. I mean, after all, that was his name. And as I've thought, you know, that'd be very simple. It probably would have made it much easier to find. Wise men wouldn't have been following stars all over, you know, the, the Middle East trying to track down this kid if, if the Bible had simply said, when he comes, he'll be in Bethlehem and his name will be in Jesus. It'd be very easy to figure out, but he didn't. Instead, it's as if, it, as I read this verse and introducing him as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the eternal father and the prince of peace, I, I mean, for whatever it's worth, you may take it differently. It makes me think of a, of a heavyweight prize fighter being introduced before the championship match. Just one nickname after another in description and title. Why not just tell us his name is Jesus? There's an answer to that question. Actually, as you might suspect, there's four of them. For the next few minutes and the time we have left, as I said, I think we would do well to ponder them because they are an incredible expression of the love God has for us the love that God has for you. Isaiah says four things about this baby who will be born, about this Messiah who we know as Jesus Christ who would come. He says four things. I'm just going to walk you through them quickly and then we'll consider why it matters. First of all, he says when Messiah comes, when as we know him, Jesus comes, he will be called first, the Bible says, wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor to all who will put their trust in him. And you know as well as I do what a counselor is. You know what a counselor's job uh, responsibilities are, whether they're a paid professional or not. A counselor is someone you tell your problems to. It's someone who you either pay or just a friend who's, who's got a good shoulder to cry on. And you go and, and you pour out the, the hurts and, and the burdens and the trials and the sorrows and the heartaches and all this stuff you're going through. That, by definition, is what a counselor is, what a counselor does. Now, there are bad counselors and there are good counselors. Good counselors are the one who, after hearing you pour out your heartaches and trials and your burdens or sorrows, tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. They say, well, based on what you're telling me, here's where I think you are, here's what I think needs to happen, here's how you should respond. And then what do they do? They send you home to work on it and say, come back next week and we'll talk some more. That's what a good counselor does. Any counselor can listen. A good counselor responds with the truth. But Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, does even more than that. Because Jesus Christ is the one who, as you pour out your heartaches and your troubles and your sorrows, responds with truth, the truth of God's word. And then you know what Jesus Christ does, what he can do for those who will trust him? He can mend them. He can heal them. 
He can take any broken down, shattered, sorry life and transform it into a trophy of God's grace. He's a wonderful counselor because he doesn't just tell the truth. He is the one who does the work of transformation. And that is such incredibly good news tonight because I know something about some of you. I don't know which ones, but I know something. I know that some of you came in carrying trials and burdens and heartaches and sorrows. You're here, but you're barely here. You carried some stuff in with you and it hurts. Christmas is not a season of joy. It's heartache and frustration and and disappointment. You know what Jesus says to you? Because when that baby, that, that child who was born, that son who was given, when he grew up and began to speak and, and carry out his ministry, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 11. He said to all who are hurting, to all who are carrying burdens, to all who are broken in some way inside, this is what Jesus said. He said, come to me. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened and heavy laden. He said, because I'm gentle. And I'm humble in heart. And then you know what he said? He said, I will give you rest for your souls. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I guess I'm guessing there's some folks here tonight who need rest in their soul. Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, he offers it to us. That's the difference he makes as a wonderful counselor. He comes and, and he comforts us with the very best kind of comfort. But that's not all he does. Isaiah says a second thing about him. Isaiah says when this child is born... Again, remember, he's writing 700 years in advance. He's talking about the birth of the arrival of Jesus Christ. He said, when this child is born, when this son is, is finally given, he will first of all be a wonderful counselor, but the second thing he says, he will also be called Mighty God. He will be called Mighty God, which means what? It, it means that this gentle, comforting, humble Savior is also incomparably strong. He is filled with power with authority, and with might. Now, by definition, that's not necessarily, that doesn't mean it has to be a good thing. I mean, strength is great and powerful, is one, power is wonderful, but, but the real question with strength of any kind and, and to any degree and in any form is what do you do with that strength? How is that strength poured out? Do you use it for good or evil, for, 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 for kindness or, or for harm? Power simply in and of itself, might is not necessarily a good thing. Adolf Hitler was mighty. Napoleon, Alexander the Great was powerful. Neighborhood bullies are mighty and powerful. But they don't use their power for good. One of my boys' favorite stories, they, they tell me all the time, I, tell, I try to tell them stories from my childhood. My boys always tell me, Dad, you have such a more interesting childhood than, than we do. Our life is so boring. And I'm like, no, I just have a couple of good stories. And... And one of my boy's favorite stories is about the time I mouthed off to the neighborhood bully. I, I didn't just mouth off to one of them, I mouthed off to a whole group of them. So walking home from fourth grade, I was walking up a hill. The bullies were on bikes. <laughs> one of them said something to me as I walked past, and, and, and not thinking, not being a very wise fourth grader, I said something back to him. Sixty seconds later, I found myself laying on the ground, surrounded by a circle of bikes, these wheels being pounded into my legs, rolled at me, and literally, I'm telling the absolute truth, I have no idea how I got out of that circle. I just know that a few minutes later, I was out of the midst of the bullies to whom I had mouthed off. I was running in the back door of my house, crying, tears streaming down my face. My mom said what happened. I told her what happened. I, I said the bullies were there, and I said something to them. She said, well, what did you expect they were going to do? <laughs> Thanks a lot, you know? But she was right. They were powerful, they were bigger, and they were stronger than me, but, than me but, but they most definitely were not using their strength and their power for good. And my point is simply that, that strength doesn't always equate to goodness. 
except for in the case of Jesus Christ, the mighty God. He is more mighty, more powerful, more strong than, than any other. And yet, ironically, how did the mighty God come? As a baby, as a child, in humility and weakness. Here's the irony of Christmas. God came as a child to show us how mighty he is. Ray Ortland says this in, in commenting on this description of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as a mighty God. He says, quote, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us in this life, his answer to the bullies swaggering through history was not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. And you know what difference that makes here tonight? The difference it makes, the difference he makes, is that means we can not only find comfort in this Messiah, but we can find safety and security in him too. Again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing there's some folks here tonight who are in desperate need of security and safety. Everything in life feels out of control. Isaiah says he is a mighty God. He's a wonderful counselor, number one. He's a mighty God, number two. And then a third, very interesting description he gives of Jesus. He says when Messiah comes, when this baby is born, when this son is given, he will also be known or called eternal father. A child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be thirdly eternal father. And, and believe it or not, that's a, a description that's meant to convey a spirit of hope. If the wonderful counselor, that's comfort. If the mighty God, that's security. Eternal Father is meant to convey to us a, a message of hope, even though it may not seem that way at first. And the reason it may not seem that way to some of you is because, again, not everybody had a good earthly father. Some of you, when you think of the father relationship in your life, you think of a bad relationship. You think of no relationship. And so when you hear God, when you hear the Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ, described as an eternal Father, you don't know what to do with that. That's a fact of the very broken world that we live in. But that doesn't change the fact. In fact, if anything, it only accentuates what a good earthly father is like or, or should be. Ideally speaking, a good earthly father is someone who not merely makes your life possible. I mean, biologically, everybody's got to have a father. But a good earthly father is someone who, after bringing you into this world, provides for you, protects you, teaches you, equips you, nurtures you to grow up and live a meaningful, fruitful life. You know what Isaiah is saying here? Saying Jesus Christ came into this world to show us God wants to do that for you and me too. He wants to be a perfect father. And he wants to give you, if you will trust him all the benefits and blessings that is the heavenly father he can give and again jesus christ is the one he's the only one who makes that possible that again is why he came that is the difference he makes in in john 14 21 jesus said he was born and then he grew up and he began to speak and teach and minister to people and here's one of the great things he said he said anyone who loves me will be loved by my father you love me and, and my father will pour his love out upon you the really exciting thing we're told here is that the love of our Heavenly Father is not only good and holy and perfect and sweet, it is also a love that is eternal. It lasts forever. Messiah, when he comes, Jesus came 
to show us God's love for us as a wonderful counselor, a comforter, a mighty God, security and strength, an eternal father who gives us great hope. And then fourth and finally, maybe this is the title we're most familiar with at Christmas, he will come to be the Prince of Peace. Because isn't that what the angels sang over the shepherds watching over their flocks by night in Bethlehem? You know the story. We've had it read to us already. As the shepherds were out there minding their own business, it was quiet and it was dark, and then angels appeared. And what did they say? What did they announce? They said, glory to God in the highest. What did they say next? Help me out. What did they say? Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And when we take that from the Christmas story that the angels, in announcing Jesus' birth, one of the first things out of their mouth was peace on earth, and we go back and say, oh, Isaiah, he said something about that. He said when Messiah comes, he'll be prince of peace. We go, oh, the math works. The story fits. The details all come together. But let me ask you a question. Is there peace on earth tonight? Was there peace on earth that night? Has there ever truly been peace on earth any night before, during, or since Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and the angel said, peace on earth? No. And that leaves us with one of only two possible conclusions. And only one of them can be the right answer. The fact that Isaiah said he'll be prince of peace and the angel says that's that's who's come and that's what he's come to do. And yet there is no peace on earth means one of two things. First of all, it means the angels were wrong. It means Isaiah lied. It means God did not mean what he said when he said he will be the prince of peace. That's option number one. Option number two, however, the only other alternative we have is that Jesus has a different definition of peace than we do. That Jesus' definition of peace means something more than simply the absence of conflict and of violence and of war. And if you chose option number two, you're a winner at Maranatha Bible Church tonight. You picked the correct answer. Jesus does have a different definition of peace than anyone in the world has ever given. Because while in verse 7 of this passage, Isaiah affirms, and we're really not going to look at it tonight, but he affirms that, that a day is coming when Jesus will rule over all the world, and he will establish worldwide peace. And what Isaiah 9, 7 says is it will continue to multiply and, and, and deepen and grow. One day, he promises, yet in the future, world peace will come. The fact of the matter is when Jesus came, when the Son of God was born, when the Son of God was given to us, he brought us a far more immediate and personal offer. He did so, one of the places he did so was in John 14, where Jesus said this. He said it to his disciples, but tonight perhaps he's saying it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then Jesus said this, and he said, oh, by the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way you get to God the Father is by putting your faith in me. In other words, what Jesus was saying was this, turn to me. Turn to me, Jesus said, in humble, repentant, willing faith. And you know what he said? I will give you peace. Not world peace, personal peace. 
The peace of a, of a relationship with God that lasts forever. The assurance that no matter how long or hard or burdensome life here becomes, here's the promise, the best is yet to come. And the best that is yet to come, he says here, goes on and on forever. World peace is going to happen someday. God promises it, and I'm with him. You are too, I hope. But he offers you personal peace tonight. If you'll surrender your heart and your life to Jesus, the child who was born, the son who was given. Last week, I learned a brand new word. It's not every day you learn a brand new word, but I learned one last week. Tonight, to sort of bring all this together, I want to share it with you. My wife actually introduced the word to me. She was reading in one of her Advent devotionals, and she shot me an email, and she said, I just came across something really cool. Check it out. And so I did. And, and I'd never heard this word before. In fact, I had to say it out loud four times before I could even pronounce it correctly, but I figured it out. As I said, I want to share it with you tonight to try to, to try to pull all of this together. I'll also share it with you because if nothing else I've said makes sense to you, at least you can go home saying you learned something at church tonight on Christmas Eve. You can take this one home with you. And the word I want to teach you or that I want to share with you tonight, we'll put it up on the screen so you can see it for yourself. The word is eucatastrophe. Anybody ever heard that word before, eucatastrophe? We're all going to learn something at church tonight. All right. Eucatastrophe. This is a word that was coined 50, 60 years ago by J.R.R. Tolkien. You may know him as the author of The Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit. And it's a word that in his writing that he coined, that he created by taking our English word, you can see it there, catastrophe. And we all know what a catastrophe is because we've all been through them. Terrible, total, shattering disaster when life's worst comes crashing in. But he took that English word catastrophe and he attached to it the, the Greek prefix you, which means good. Good catastrophe. <laughs> you catastrophe. And, and he created that word because he couldn't find, Tolkien couldn't find any other word to describe what he wanted to convey in, in his novels and, and in those fantasy stories that so many of you know and love so well. Specifically, here's how Tolkien, and I'll put this on the screen as well for you, how he defined this term, eucatastrophe. He defined it as, quote, the sudden turn of events at the end of a story, which ensures that the hero does not meet some terrible, impending, and very likely doom. Again, he applied that to his novels. If you know the story of the Lord of the Rings and others, you know that, that at the end of the story, that's, that's essentially the kind of thing that happens. But what you may not know and may not be aware of is that while Tolkien used that to express sort of the heart, the, the climactic moments of those great old stories that he wrote, Tolkien ultimately used it to describe what we're celebrating here tonight, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. Tolkien called the birth of Christ the eucatastrophe of all human history because it looked like everything was going wrong. Everything was. Everything was wrong. Everything is wrong. Everything is broken, stained and tarnished and ruined by sin. But unto us a child was born. Unto us a son was given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And tonight, that eucatastrophe, that best of all possible endings is offered to me and you. 
Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. Listen to me. He is willing and able to transform the story of your life. He's willing to make sure that you do not meet terrible, impending, and otherwise very certain doom. He will give you a relationship with God that lasts forever if you will simply believe this one thing, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he not only was born in Bethlehem, but he died for our sins and rose from the dead. You believe that, and you will be saved. He offers to transform every life. You can call it whatever you want. It sounds like a catastrophe to me. And it's also just a fraction of a hint of a glimpse of how very much God in heaven loves you and me. And it's why the big idea this Christmas Eve night is an invitation, it's a plea, perhaps a, a gentle reminder to just trust Jesus. Just trust Jesus. Hand your life to him and it will never be the same. Father, these things are not true because I say so. They're not true because the church says so. They're true because in your word you say so. You promised that a child would be born, that a son would be given, that the government would rest on his shoulders, and, and he would come as, as the supreme expression of how very, very much you love us and want us to be with you forever. Father, so many of us here tonight are here because we already know that message and we believe that message, and we're here to celebrate that message, but some don't. And Father, I pray that in this moment, as we close in a moment in song, as we have quietness here in prayer, that if there's a man, a woman, a young person, a child who does not yet have the hope of Christ, the love of God poured out in their, their heart, that they would simply whisper a prayer, Jesus, I trust you. And they will be saved. Father, we thank you for the story, not just the story, but the truth and the hope that comes down to us at Christmas. We praise you for the opportunity, not just to remember it, but to proclaim it. Father, may every heart in attendance here tonight, leave knowing that you love them and that Jesus offers eternal life. It is in his name that we pray.